Well, we now turn our attention into Romans chapter 7. We're looking at verses 13 through 25 when we finally get into this discussion of the Apostle Paul as he is addressing the church in Rome. I'm just going to show you my cards up front. You're going to know exactly where I land up front so there's no guesses. And then as we work through it, I'm just then going to support every one of the truths that I'm going to make right here. When we come to this passage, this passage is teaching us this. This is teaching us that the natural man under the law is completely incapable of keeping the law of God. The natural man, informed by the law, knowing the truth of God, hearing God's truth, and knowing what is right and good, can affirm it, recognize it as good, even say it as good, but have no strength within him to keep the law. In fact, he will find in himself a powerlessness. The best a person can do, apart from the gospel of God, is recognize truth, but he will fall short. Man needs the grace of God. He needs the spirit of God. He needs the gospel of God. He can observe and see the beauty of God's work in the law, and he can affirm that it is right, but he will have no power to keep it, no power to obey, because the law does not produce obedience. The law does not produce righteousness. It only reveals what righteousness is. It recognizes it, confirms it, but it also recognizes evil and condemns evil. So that the result is, instead of turning to the law to find something to rescue us, we turn to God, we turn to the gospel, we turn to the grace of God to be delivered. That is, I believe, exactly what this section is teaching us. It's the work of the law and the weakness of the law to save. But the power of the law to reveal sin and the power of the law to expose the way of righteousness so that we know clearly God's path. That we need to turn to God's grace found in Jesus Christ in order to be delivered from our sins. We can't dress ourselves up. We can't make ourselves right. There's no amount of good works that can be performed by us that will then qualify us to receive the gospel of God. It's no matter, no matter how much we know about the law and we seek to keep the law, there's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right that the grace of God then comes in and saves us. That's what Paul demonstrates through this, and that's what I'll seek to prove as we work our way through this marvelous section. Now, as we set this up, there's a lot I've been saying getting us to this point. And so I want to just summarize all of that so that you understand that you see these truths as we head into this section here. Because uh, I've been laying it out, and you might have missed it, so I'll say it one more time, and then not, never again. You'll have to get the tape and hear it from here on out. Or the MP3. We don't have tapes anymore. Someone told me. It's like, you're too old. You don't have tapes anymore. It's MP3s, and everything's downloaded or watched on YouTube, and that's right. Anyways, what Paul has been doing here in Romans is this. He's been defending the gospel. He started back in chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. He states that. Chapter 1, 16 and 17. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. 
From this statement, he continues through the rest of this book, defending, up through chapter 12. So from, nine, from chapter 1 through 11 is defending the work of the gospel among Jew and Gentile to all the nations. He defends the work of the gospel. And he's been arguing for that particular case here, the superiority of the gospel of God. And he even is then drawing his brother and the Jew careful to himself to think carefully about this gospel that he is preaching. Now he focuses in on the argument as he is continuing, and he brings the argument over to chapter 5 and verse 20. This comes up when he's talking about the gospel. He contrasts the gospel of God's grace against the law. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He goes and defends the superiority of grace and the work of God's grace. But the natural question that would come up, well, if it is God's grace that rescues us and God's grace that delivers us and we're not under law, but we're under grace, and that means that we can live any way we want to live. We can continue to live in open rebellion, and, and for that, we can just cause grace to increase. That's the very question he asked in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Do we just live it up in sin more the more so we can glorify God? Is that what you're teaching, Paul, in your gospel? Of course, he answers in verse 2, may it never be. He now shows the superiority of the grace of God to rescue us and set us free. Verse 15 of chapter 6, he asks another question. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. He shows here the power of grace to transform and to rescue us. So the question comes in then is, what is the focus of chapters 6, 7, and 8? Is the focus of chapters 6, 7, and 8 our sanctification? Or is the focus of chapters 6, 7, and 8 the work of the gospel? I'm suggesting to you, as the context is emphasizing, Paul is arguing for the superiority of the gospel of God. It's a gospel of grace. It's a gospel of righteousness. It is a gospel that is superior to the law. It is the gospel that works through the work of the Spirit of God. That is the primary focus, secondarily, is the impact of the gospel on us, what the gospel does to change us and transform us. The primary emphasis is Paul's defense of the gospel, the gospel that he's unashamed of, the gospel that reveals God's righteousness, the gospel that was proclaimed in the Old Testament, the gospel which demonstrates the superiority of Christ over Adam, the gospel which transforms sinners as slaves of unrighteousness to slaves of righteousness, a gospel which is superior to the law because it brings transformation, a gospel which is, has the emphasis of the Spirit of God, Romans chapter 8. This is Paul's unfolding of his message here in Romans. So this brings up then chapter 7 in the place of what is Romans chapter 7 all about In Romans chapter 7, Paul begins to answer the question that would have been on the Jew's mind when hearing the message of God's grace. Is the law useless? Is it an entire waste? To which he answers, of course not. 
First of all, the law still has jurisdiction over those who are not in Christ. For those who are still who don't have faith, the law has jurisdiction over them and it rules over them. The law governs them and exposes their sin. They are under condemnation because they are under the law and the law reveals their sin. But the law as well, verses 7 through 12, is holy, righteous, and good. The law is virtuous. It's holy, just. And now we look in verses 13 through 25 of Romans 7, and we see that the work of the law, what it does, the law reveals the sinfulness of man. So it rules over those who are outside of Christ. It demonstrates the virtue of God and is itself virtuous, and it works to expose sin. It's that third question, the exposing of sin, that Paul draws our attention to in verses 13 through 25. So that's the context of this passage for us. Let me just give you a couple more observations, and then we'll get into this text. The second thing I want to observe is Paul's style of writing. Paul now, multiple times, begins to ask a question and answer it. In fact, that's three times here in chapter 7. Verse 1, do you not know? Verse 7, what shall we say then? Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Three questions. This is the normal writing of Paul throughout the book of Romans thus far, is that he is bringing up a question and then responding to it. It is a rhetorical device for him to raise questions. This isn't a narrative. He's not telling a story. This isn't a discussion like a letter to the Corinthians. When you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul had a series of questions that they asked him, and he's answering, and you can see that style reading through the book of 1 Corinthians. They kept bringing up questions, and he gave them answers. This is Paul thinking carefully through the debate and then asking questions out of implications and giving it an answer. So this whole section is, again, polemical. It's a debate. It's a discussion. It's an attempt to win the mind of, particularly here, the Jewish audience. This is Romans 7. He is going to win their minds over by confronting the ideology of their system and showing the superiority of the gospel of God. Now, the third observation we need to make as we head into this text is what Paul has already said about believers. What are believers? If you turn back to chapter 6, notice how Paul describes a believer. First of all, uh, Paul described a believer as dead to sin. Chapter 6 and verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? They are free from sin. They're dead to sin. Chapter 6 and verse 6, knowing this, that our old self, which was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We have died to sin. That's the believer. The one who believes in Jesus Christ has died to sin. We are freed. We've been crucified with him. We've been united to Christ. We've been joined to him so that our old man passed away, our new man now lives. Notice the past tense in verses 17 and 20. There it says, though you were slaves of sin. And down to verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin. 
Speaking of the past condition, before Jesus Christ, you were in this state of being a slave of sin. But, verse 18 and 19, but having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And verse 19, I'm speaking in fleshly terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We are now slaves of righteousness. So we are in Christ. We've been set free. Verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you. Just through then chapter 6, he's described us as dead to sin. He's described us as living in grace, as grace being our new master, as righteousness being our new master, having been freed from the body of death, having been freed from slavery to unrighteousness. This is the state of the believer. And he continues on with that into chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The description of the believer has been rescued from that slavery to sin. He now walks in the newness of life. He walks in the Spirit of God. Turn over to chapter 8. He continues again in the description of the believer in chapter 8 and verse 2. He says this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Again, the old man, in uh, absent of Christ, is in slavery to sin and slavery to unrighteousness, is dead in sin. But the believer is alive in the Spirit, and he's set free from the slavery to sin and death. Verse 4 of chapter 8, So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How do we live as believers? We live not only being, we live not controlled by the flesh today, we live controlled by the Spirit. The point is in all this that in the context of Romans chapter 6 and chapter 8, and even in the middle of chapter 7, he describes as a believer as free from sin, no longer under its slavery. Describes the believer as being controlled by grace, Grace is his master, controlled by the Spirit. So the description then of a believer, if we're going to say anything different about the believer, in Romans chapter 7, we must explain then the context and the contradiction in the context. If you're going to say that Romans seven fourteen through 25 refers to a believer. Now, fourth observation. Again, a couple more, then we actually get into our text. The fourth observation we observed is starting in chapter 7 and verse 9, that Paul referred to himself uh, in a rhetorical form when he said there, I was once alive apart from the law. He's not speaking of himself and his own personal experience. He is speaking of, uh, he's taking on the form of his audience. Uh, He's taking on as a rhetorical tool to engage with his audience 
It's like this, when we are debating, you know, in debate, we could just speak in the second person, you, and it could be condemning, you are this way, you acted this way. That just comes across as uh, confrontational. If I was to confront you and just said, you are like this, you're not paying attention, uh, then it would be a confrontation, it's harsh. But if I said, I was there, I acted this way, put myself in the middle of it, now he takes away the edge and forces the issue at hand. I demonstrated this a couple weeks ago, that this is how Paul's arguing here. He did this in chapter 3 and verse 7. He does this here in 7.9 and also in 7.24. But what I didn't show you is that he does it in other places throughout the New Testament. First, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, for example, when he, you know that passage when he says, If I speak of the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Paul didn't have all mysteries and all knowledge. But he is putting himself in this very condition. If, but if, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, I'm not sure if Paul moved any mountains, but uh, you can look through church history. There's no example of Paul actually moving mountains. He says, but if I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I, have all, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. See, Paul puts himself right in the middle of the argument as a form of communicating with his audience to draw attention to the idea that he's presenting. He does the same thing in chapter 14, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, and verse 14 and 15. He does it also in Galatians, chapter 2, verses 18 through 21. The point is, this is a normal device in the Greek world to communicate one's Uh, with his audience to argue a particular point. Fifthly, notice in our context here who Paul's writing to. Romans chapter 7 tells us uh, in verse 1 who Paul is writing to. The parenthetical phrase there, for I am speaking to those who know the law, Romans 7, 1, is the indication of the very audience he's addressing. He is addressing believers. Those who know the law. What kind of believers? Well, turn back to chapter 2 and verse 17 and following. Here are the, here's the audience that he is addressing. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and you are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? What did he say about the Jews here? He spoke of their great confidence. You bear the name Jew. You rely upon the law. You can approve the things that are essential. You know right and wrong. You're confident in yourself. You even think yourself as a teacher. That's the group he's addressing. He's addressing this bold group who has confidence in their earthly traditions And he is saying, superior to your traditions, to your heritage, is the gospel of God. It's 
that group that he comes back to here in chapter 7 and verse 1. They are the people who, again, who he says, I am speaking to those who know the law. I'm speaking to these Jews. You are the ones that I want to draw attention to. So what would have been on their mind is this. Paul, you're preaching your gospel, your gospel of grace, your gospel of God's work. And your gospel, then, you're saying is superior to the law. And we're to follow your gospel of grace rather than the law. Then you're, you're saying the law is worthless. The law is useless. And the problem's with the law. And he's saying, actually, that's not my case at all. Actually, the law is virtuous. Actually, the law has a work, a present work right now. It's bringing condemnation to all those who are under it. But also, the law is powerless. The law cannot deliver you. And that's our argument here. So now we get to turn our attention to Romans 7. And trust me, I will not bore you with that again. I'm repenting right now. I will not bring that up. You can get the MP3 from here on out. But all of that is we have to have in our mind. If we're going to look at this text properly, we have to understand its context. If we're going to look at this text properly, we have to look at those particular details and have those details shape our understanding of what Paul is unfolding here because we cannot interpret a passage in a vacuum. We can't just jump right in, take verse 14 over 25, let it say whatever we want it to say, and ignore everything else Paul has said to that point. We have to understand what the author is trying to communicate to us so that we can understand God's intended meaning for us. And that's what we're doing here. And we're in the midst of this discussion then. Paul begins to talk about the work of the law. Notice what he says in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. It is here then, Paul brings up the last question. Is this virtuous law the problem? That'd be the implication on their hearts and minds. You're saying, Paul, the problem is the law itself. And honestly, I think we're tempted to believe that today. The law is the problem well, we've got to get rid of it. It's, a, it's the problem. And Paul says, may it never be, the strongest terms. If that which is virtuous caused us to die, is it the problem with the law? Is the, is the law like the hemlock flower? That beautiful flower that you look at it, if you touched it, if you even consumed it, it would kill you. It's toxic, highly toxic. Or the bleeding heart flower, again, another kind of flower that's toxic to both people and animals. You look at it, you see its beauty, you're kind of drawn into it. Is the law kind of like the Methuselah of, of virtues that you look at it and you're drawn in, you see its beauty and it just turns you to stone? Is it this thing that uh, you see it's attractive, but then it only hurts you? Kind of like a fishing hook. It's out there, shiny, glittery, you're drawn to it, but it only causes you to die. That's the idea, the implication that these Jews are throwing upon Paul. You're just 
Taking that which is good to us, that which we saw as valuable, and you're saying it's worthless, it's actually harming us. And Paul's answer is emphatically no. It's not the law's problem. It's not the law at all. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was sin within us. That's what he's going to demonstrate from 14 to 25. Is the law is sin. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with our sin. Sin is what causes us to fall. Sin is the problem. In fact, it says at the end of verse 13 there, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. It's the commandment that revealed the true depths of our sin and revealed the true depths of our fallenness. The commandment didn't cause the sin. It didn't create the sin. It revealed it. It was there so that the law then exposed our condition. So it's again, proves itself to be virtuous. Again, proves itself to be, as verse 12 says, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But there's sin. And sin brings man down. And sin wars against the law. And sin is exposed by the law. And sin is revealed to be utterly sinful by the law. To which then, verse 14 through 25 is Paul's explanation of that. And this will be our outline. We're just going to look at the first point this morning is this. The problem of sin. Or the problem described, actually. The problem described, verse 14. In verse 14, Paul describes this problem. And he starts to illustrate it for us. Notice what he says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. The question is, all right, what is going on here? Let's just start to unpack this. The beginning, therefore, uh, in the Greek, the word there is gar, it's a conjunction. It's tying in the statement to what has previously been stated. So the question in verse 13 is now explained from 14 to 25. That's what the conjunction is doing. It's showing a subordinate idea that is continuing on in the discussion. This isn't a new discussion. This isn't a new idea that he brings out here in verse 14. It's a continuation of an answer to the question that was raised in verse 13. That's important. If you're going to transition and you're going to say it means something else, you have to talk about or explain where that transition came from. Here, Paul is now, I believe, illustrating his answer from verse 14 through 25. He's illustrating the answer for the presence and the work of sin. What is happening? If it's not a problem with the law, but it's a problem with sin, what is this battle with sin? That is the description of verse 14 through 25 that Paul begins in. Now notice what he does here. After showing this connection, now he's going to explain it. Notice the first thing he does. For we know that the law is spiritual. We'll just work through it as he's unfolded it here. Who are the we? He says, we know. Who are the we? Again, some conclude it must be believers because he's writing to the Roman church. It's the believers that he's referring to here. But you do remember, again, 
verse 1 of chapter 7, there he says, it's those who know the law, right? For I am writing to those who know the law. And what does he say here in verse 14? We know what? The law is spiritual. It's the same subject. We're talking about the law to those who know the law. Same subject. So the we here are those Jews who are, again, aware of the law. And he says, we know. What is the knowing there? The knowing is in the perfect tense, means it's something that they had learned and they continue to understand. It's some piece of knowledge that they had gained which continues to have implications until to today. That is something that we received. We know by teaching, by instruction, we appreciate by experience what we've learned and we continue to know that until today. And what is it that we know, he says? We know that the law is spiritual. What is he doing here? He is affirming the virtue of the law. The law is good. The law is upright. The law is virtuous. The law is spiritual. And he makes a statement here. The law is spiritual. Puts it in the present tense, meaning that it is right now spiritual and it is continually spiritual. It is regularly spiritual, persistently spiritual. It is regular and ongoing and persistent. Now this is where the crux of the matter is that unfolds the entire rest of these verses from 14 through 25. And I wish not to go into this subject, but I have to because if I ignore it, then everyone's going to say, you ignored the hardest question, which is this. Why does Paul speak in the present tense? Why does he speak now? He says, now, I know this law is spiritual present tense. In fact, 36 times from 14 through 25, he speaks of the present tense. I am a flesh, that's present tense. For what I am doing, verse 15, present tense. I do not understand in the present tense, on and on. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, present tense, on and on throughout the entire rest of the section. The answer is that what some conclude, Paul is speaking in the present tense because he's talking about his present experience as the apostle, speaking of himself as a believer, they say, that he is speaking of himself right now. And that's the transition of the audience is concluded. He moved away from the Jews to speaking about us right now. And that we know by the present tense. And I would want to point out, not so fast, for this reason. Because the Greek tense isn't concerned about time of action, it's concerned about kind of action. And the kind of action is the duration here, the regular, continual state of being in the present tense. If I was speaking in the aorist, I'd be past tense, a completed action, something that happened historically. But here, present tense, we're speaking of the continuous action of something. He's like, I didn't come here to learn grammar. Well, I get that. But let me just point out to you this point, which is very critical. He says of the law, the law is spiritual, meaning 
It is right now. It will be in five minutes the same. It'll be in an hour the same. It'll be tomorrow the same. It'll be the week after that the same. It'll be a year after that the same. And on and on. It'll always be in this state of being regularly, consistently, continually spiritual. But he also says, I am of the flesh. In the exact same tense. So he's saying, I am right now in the flesh. I am tomorrow going to be in the flesh. I am next week going to be in the flesh. I am next year going to be in the flesh. I am next century going to be in the flesh. I am always in the flesh. And if he only means at that point, we're fleshly, we're of flesh and blood, I would fully agree with that. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 15. What I'm doing, I don't understand. Regularly, persistently, Continually. I do the very things, verse 16, I do not want to do. Verse 16, if I do the very things I don't want to do, I agree with the law. If I regularly, continually, consistently do the things I don't want to do, I recognize the law is good. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it regularly, continually, consistently. It is sin within me. The point is this, that whatever you say about the law, you also have to say about this individual because both are in the present tense or speaking of the regular continual action. And now we have the very question at hand. How is a believer described as one who is regularly, continually, consistently under the inability to do what is good? How can you, verse 21, find then the principle that evil is present within me, the one who wants to do good? For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. Notice, making me a prisoner of the law of sin in my members, regularly, continually, persistently. See, what happens here is Paul is actually demonstrating this state of the natural man. The state of the natural man, the one who doesn't have the Spirit of God, the one who has not been born again, the one who is outside of grace, you're in a continual state that the best thing you can do is honor or recognize truth, say it is good, know the direction you need to go, but you have no power within you. No ability to change. You're of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, and a slave to your sin with no power to overcome it. And that's all the law can do. All the law can do is show you your condition, that you're in a state of total slavery to sin. The law can't set you free from that slavery, can't deliver you, cannot rescue you. And that Law is regularly and continually spiritual. The natural man, apart from Christ, is regularly, continually, fleshly sold into bondage to sin and total slavery to sin. Which means this, to summarize it for us, the natural man needs the gospel. The natural person, all of us, need the gospel of God. We need the grace of God to come and rescue us and make us alive. We need the work of God found, again, in Christ Jesus to set us free from the slavery to sin, set us free from this bondage to sin because the law can't set us free. 
from the bondage to sin. The law can only expose it within us. The question you know, that we struggle with is this feels like us all the time. It feels like my experience. And I would say, yes, it feels like us because we have the, shame, the same shared experience. We believers, we who have faith in Jesus Christ, we who have confessed with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believed in our heart that God raised us from the dead, we have the same shared experience with the unbeliever in this sense. We share flesh. Just as they're a flesh, we're a flesh. We know the limitations of the human, of humanity. But we're different in Christ because we've been set free from this bondage. The bondage described here as total slavery in verses 14 through 25. One of which one who is totally slave to sin, having been sold into bondage to sin. Now, here's, here's the point, just to kind of push back on the believer view here. If you say your conclusion, this has to be a believer, this is only a believer whenever he sins. So he's not sinning all the time, but whenever he does sin, this is his description of him. Then I would say to you, then, when is the law not spiritual? When is the law less than spiritual? Because here in the text, it says the law is present tense, regularly, continually spiritual. And I, present tense, am regularly, continually of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. If there's a broken pattern of, of my own sin, then there would be a broken pattern of the law being spiritual, if it's referring to a believer. Now, if you're sitting there going, I don't even understand that argument. I have no clue what you're talking about. Well, that wasn't for you. That was for the people who wanted to take the other view, and I was just giving them the answer. But for you, the answer is this. Which person are you? Do you have the grace of God ruling in your life? Have you confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you turned from self-reliance to reliance upon God? Because your own present self-reliance, all it's going to be able to do is to help you affirm what's right, see the path of God, but you will only find continual failure, continual inability to keep the standard of God. No matter how high you lift the standard, you will only find that you are completely incapable of continually walking in the pattern and the righteousness of God because you lack the grace of God and the Spirit of God found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. So that we could come to the end of chapter 7, move into chapter 8, verse 1, and get to the place, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So law reveals sin, and law reveals our emptiness, and our powerlessness, and our slavery. It is the gospel of God that sets us free from the condemnation. Now when we come back, Next week, and we get to this text, one might ask the question, Pastor, are you teaching that the Christian is sinless? That the Christian is, is going to be without sin and never sin at all? And I'd say, absolutely not. Actually, we'll look here at verse 14 when Paul says, I am of flesh. 
we will look at the nature of man before Christ and after Christ and answer the question, what is changed in our salvation? What has God done that sets us free? We'll put on our theology hats next week to look at that. At this point, what we're seeing in Paul's defense of Romans uh, chapter 7 is that he is building the case to prove there is no other source of hope, nowhere else to turn that will deliver you, but the gospel of God and found in Jesus Christ. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths. Thank you so much for the riches of your word. For indeed, you uh, help us when we are powerless. And it's the riches of your grace that are on display you know, in your word. So we pray that as we work our way through Romans 7, that we would have greater confidence in what you've taught here. So we would have no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our own abilities, but our entire hope and confidence would be in you alone. And when we are tempted to look to ourselves and and try to organize our life and try to put ourselves in order, it may be at that moment that we look back and we recognize our complete inability. We are alive because of grace. We are alive because of your work and your spirit ruling and reigning within us that you have set us free. And so now we just yield ourselves fully to you to direct and guide us as you please so that we wouldn't fix our attention on the strength and wisdom and might of man, but we'd fix our attention on the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this marvelous work and this time together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.